Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Before we get stuck into today's episode, I have two pieces of housekeeping. First of all, uh, regarding the schedule of future episodes, I had been working from a serious format so far, uh, and the second series was only supposed to last about six episodes, but with the lockdown and the lower opportunity cost of my leisure time, I stretched that out to nearly double that. So I'd like to keep the series going a bit longer. So I'm not going to call a halt to the series just yet, but I think... An episode every week might be unsustainable post-lockdown. So for the foreseeable future, I'm going to try and release a new episode every fortnight. Secondly, I'd just like to give a huge word of thanks to my new patrons. Um, It's great to interact and get some direct feedback. And your help in keeping everything ticking along is really appreciated. The Patreon site is at patreon.com forward slash irishecompod. If you've enjoyed the podcast as much as you enjoy a cup of coffee a month, the Patreon is a way to say thanks. And thanks also to those who've offered feedback on recent episodes. I've got a lot of comments, both personally and through iTunes. Just just want to say that, you know, hearing that others have enjoyed the podcast, have found some of them useful, especially the Economics Careers episode, you know, it makes it all worthwhile. So just thanks very much for that. Okay, so just on to today's episode. Slightly different to our usual focus in that we have a music economist, Chris Carey, on. Chris has uh, a number of very impressive uh, titles and former titles. He's head of international marketing at TicketSwap, a founder of the Fast Forward mu- Music Conference, a former global insight director at Universal and DMI, and a former senior economist at PRS for Music. So you're, so you're probably thinking, why do you want to listen to a music economist? Well... I'm a huge music fan, and when I put my economics hat on, I'm always interested in understanding how changes in the industry affect the incentives faced by musicians and record labels, and how this then translates into the music we listen to. So one great example I always think about is how the physical medium itself has affected the type of music that we listen to. So for example, singles and the length of a single was influenced by how much music could fit on a 7-inch record or how much, how long a radio DJ was willing to play a song for. Albums were often structured to reflect um, the format that it came in. So back in the days of vinyl, you had to flip the album from side A to side B halfway through. And a lot of albums 
take that into account. Like rumors by Fleetwood Mac is a good example. You finish side A with Songbird, a nice relaxing piano ballad by Christine McVie. You flip over. Next thing you're into the chain, which is just uh, a great song to get things going again. So basically, the flip of the record became part of the experience and the structure of the album reflected this. So these sort of incentives influence the sort of music we listen to and it's something that I wanted to explore. There are lots of different incentives that we explore in the conversation. We discuss how changes in data availability affect musicians, how it affects industry participants, how it affects maybe how record labels uh, decide what musicians they take on, how much of a chance or opportunity they give to musicians, how this is structured, and how this feeds into the sort of music that we listen to. Um, We also discuss how these structures, these structural changes affect the incentives faced by the musicians themselves, how they make their money from live gigs as opposed to um, recorded material, and how this affects the type of music that we listen to, and also how our listening habits can shape um, the music itself. So, so these are all interesting economics questions, and uh, I'll leave you to the conversation. No worries. Um, well, maybe just to start off, you could tell us a bit about yourself, uh, what your background is, if you what, what you studied, and how you got into the music industry. Uh, yes, yeah, so studied economics um, a long while ago now. Um, moved into banking for a short while, did 18 months there uh, before taking a job as an economist at PRS Music um, who look after songwriters' rights, um, similar to Imro in Ireland. And what sort of role then were you uh, placed in as an economist at uh, an organisation like that? Yeah, so at the time there were only really two economists working in the music industry. Uh, Will Page, who went on to be a chief economist at Spotify, uh, being the other um, he was my boss for the three and a half years I was there. Um, and the work was tremendously varied. We had everything from deal structures and what the future of internet-based licensing might look like, um, including licensing YouTube in the UK, uh, but of course then moving on to licensing Spotify, other services that came and went like We 7 Right. This would have been in early days of streaming, I presume. Uh, yes, indeed. So what we're thinking, 2008, 2010, right. that kind of time frame. And so when ad-funded music was still kind of at the forefront of streaming, more so than subscription models. And so we kind of, so one fraction of what we did was helping the broadcast and online team negotiate um, and come up with a good structure uh, for those new models. Um, we also did some kind of more of the international work. So how do you optimize revenue from overseas? and all the way through to adding up the music industry in the UK, kind of for the first time, so we could present ourselves to government much more effectively and, and demonstrate the value of the creative industries so that we were an effective lobbying force, right? Um, as we deserve to be. Okay, so very much on, on the side of what's the value being created in this industry, and then, like any other in- industry representative, industry representative group, trying to just present that. Uh, yeah, that was part of it. Um, and obviously inputting into what is now called UK Music um, to make sure that they had the best evidence they could um, when they were lobbying um, on behalf of the wider music industry as well. So one thing that that I find really interesting is uh, when you look at, you mentioned Spotify and these sort of streaming services and and the data that they have. Um, Have you done much work on that in terms of how the data 
can influence decisions of, of these sort of companies? Uh, yes. Um, so leaving PRS, I went to EMI Music Group or EMI Group even. Um, where I looked after their recorded music division and their publishing division for Spotify data and iTunes data globally. Um, so I built and ran their big data infrastructure, probably 14 billion rows of data back in the day, right. um, and helped bring the right questions to the table, answer those questions effectively, um, but then on a global scale to make sure that people could self-serve um, which was fairly innovative at the time. It's fairly expected now. And what sort of what what sort of questions would you be asking? So let's do the basics. Demographics. Who's listening? Who listened last week? Who listened four weeks ago? Which songs are they listening to? Right. We would make sure. So one of my frustrations with Spotify analytics at the moment, and actually with much of the analysis that still gets done, is that people who listen once still get counted in the data. So if I listen to your song once, I listen for a minute, I don't like it, I go away. I'm still included in your demographic analysis usually. So even when you look at a fan base, people don't often just take out the person who only listened once. Can't we just take you out, assume you did not like it and see how the demographic changes so that we have a more accurate picture? It was those kind of quirks that we were looking for, those simple, really uncomplicated steps but that make a big difference was kind of where our, our analysis started. Actually, that seems like inf valuable information in its own way, because if you see trends, people who, who listen to something and don't like it, well, that's as valuable as the people who do. I completely. Knowing who not to target, if you assume part of the value of understanding your audience is to go and find more people who are like them, then understanding who loves you, who likes you, who could be persuaded, and who's never going to be interested are four really helpful groups to grasp. And so those rejectors become really useful inputs because you know not to spend money trying to reach them. And so when you get that data, would you, you, you present maybe some sort of descriptive statistics of what people look like and who's listening and maybe how long? Would you do any sort of dig a bit deeper, some sort of multivariate analysis to try and see how, well, if I like this band, well, then I'm likely to like this band and we should target in that context and, you know, really get under the skin of, what, of these sort of trends? Uh, so there was certainly some complex analysis done. Yeah. The thing to remember with music, though, music is so hard to quantify in the first place that it can be really hard to do decent, deep analysis of who liked what and what they'll listen to next, only because the reason that I like a piece of music and you like a piece of music might differ completely. And so the we see consumption behaviour, but we very rarely see the input that caused that output. And so it can be very difficult to kind of quantify music enough to make those kinds of recommendations. For me, it's where something like Pandora was fascinating. They started with musicologists and looked at the essence of music and how it then connects. By contrast, you've got Spotify running kind of algorithmic analysis built on the Echo Nest database that they purchased a long while back now, fully integrated, kind of looking at how people perceive the music. They tag themselves. Um, there's a number of ways of doing that. I mean, to your question, we did not really get ourselves involved that heavily on that kind of analysis. We focused more on the financial side. So the propensity of a user who is streaming 10 streams a month to convert to paid as opposed to someone with 1,000 streams a month and the common characteristics amongst paid users who had, say, converted from free to paid very quickly compared to those who have been on the free service a long time, do they stay on the paid service longer? So those were the kind of analyses we were carrying out. 
Very interesting. It reminds me, I remember having a conversation a long time ago with colleagues and we were talking about Tesco club card data and we said how useful that could be to do all these things. But the big criticism was, well, there's so much going on that you can't record. There's only so much you could say. And I think it sounds like there's a similar issue here in that, as you say, the decision to listen to a certain song, there's so many variables behind the scenes that you don't observe. Um, and we could easily conclude that analysis has no place because it can't do everything, um, which, of course, wouldn't be the right outcome either. Um, for me, Tesco Club Card is fascinating because they see your habits, they see changes in your habit, and it's a frequent enough touch point that is probably understood enough. You probably buy milk because you have a consistent reason for buying milk. I listen to certain music based on my mood, based on whether I'm going out that weekend, whether a friend has just put an album out and I want to give it a go. There's so much more variety that drives my music habit than drives my shopping habit. Okay, so we talked a lot about how these data can be used to target customers. One thing I wonder is, can they be used in managing artists? For example, would they be part of decision-making when it comes to keep a certain artist on, to give them a new contract, perhaps used as a performance metric? Yeah, so I think it can. Um, I've at risk of repeating my point about music being hard to quantify. I don't think this kind of data alone can give you a clear view of the future success of an artist. However, I do think it can be one of many interesting inputs um, alongside the inclination, the feeling of the A&R person in question, the person making the decision um, on the music side. There's a reason this person is being looked at. And so in combination with their intuition, I think it's a really interesting place in terms of who do we sign and what kind of music do we create? For me, it's an input there. And it's, it's a fairly soft signal, I think, at that point. Jump forward six months. That person has been signed for five right reasons, not just the data. And they put their first single out. We have a hypothesis internally that the demographic is X, the age group is Y, and we expect that it will connect with people who shop at A, B, and C. So, so their targets... The, the targets they need to hit, maybe it might be informed by the data. Um, well, uh, the targets they need to hit, but more likely, if you, if you assume we know very little at the start of an artist's journey, that we, we don't know what album three looks like when you start at the beginnings of album one. And there are countless examples of artists who have changed dramatically over that time. Others who have had wild success with a second album, having not done so well with the first. Adele might be an example. Ed Sheeran gets to go from mega hit to mega hit, does very well, changing just a little each time. Could you have anticipated when you pick up a singer-songwriter who'd done the UK circuit a hundred times where he would go next? There's not enough good information at that early stage. However, once you've got music out, you can see who it's resonating with. And for me, that's the value of Spotify data more so than simple sales data. Um, indulge me one second. Um, if I look at when my career started, sales data was a very good source of insight. How many copies did we sell? But you actually had no information on who was listening, how much they were listening, whether they bought it for one song or for 10, whether they discovered track seven and it became their favorite song ever. All you had is a transaction, no interaction. 
And so to enter a streaming world, you had listening data, meaningful personal listening data for the first time. So then we look at, I know Emily Sande put a single out for us. She released Heaven, debut single. Okay, which groups is it connecting with? Do we need to change our marketing plan? Is it doing what we expected? All of that insight comes, pardon me, all of that insight comes very quickly and in a really timely manner in great detail. That for me is the big power of Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music Insights. Now that, that is, that's really interesting. And you uh, struck on something that I always think about is that um, you mentioned that you might like a song. I remember when I started buying CDs, first of all, and I didn't have much money, I had about four or five CDs and I listened to them inside out, basically, until they were worn thin. Absolutely, which doesn't happen now. And that's, that's a whole topic. Like. Yeah, but then you, you mentioned, oh, you, you really fall in love with a song and it's probably some al- album track, album seven, that's sort of hidden away. But it turns out to be your after repeated listen, you know, it's it's a grower as opposed to, you know, an instant hit. Um, like, is it changing habits? Can you see these sort of changes in the data that people are not necessarily listening to a whole album anymore? And we're, are we losing that to a certain extent that people? Yes. So you, you can see it in the data and you do see a trend away from listening to a full album. And um, let's look at what that does for music. Back to you and five CDs you would play them to death. And interestingly, if you did not like it the first time, you would listen to it a second time, a third time, a fourth time to make sure you really didn't like it because you've spent money on it and your friends are telling you it's great or the tastemaker on the radio says this is the one and it's a grower. It just takes a little minute. And some of the best music you will know doesn't connect with you straight away but becomes an absolute love after you persevere through that early stage. And that kind of listening behavior where you persevere with a record, you wrestle with it and you find your way into something deep, complex that becomes beautiful doesn't happen in the same way now as when you have five CDs, you've just paid £12 for it and you're going to make sure it works for you. You're going to give it its best chance. Um, Jump forward, you've got the streaming situation where now you can play any song for 15 seconds on a playlist someone else provided for you decide you don't like it and maybe never visit it again. Does that mean then that um, what uh, record labels are looking for are the sort of these sort of songs that fit that new consumption pattern? It's like I think since since day one, since the start of any music, it, it, it tended to suit the format that it was packaged in, be it live or be it on vinyl or be it on CDs and downloads and now streaming. I wonder, are we moving away from the days of listening to uh, a, a seven-minute Pink Floyd track? Would they be behind us as opposed to maybe the, the three-minute snappy pop tune? Which, well, we always had snappy pop tunes, I suppose, but uh, they're getting a bit more a bit more of the emphasis. Well, and actually the structure of songs might change. So guitar solos were a thing for a while. I definitely missed them. Yeah. But slow, long intros were a thing right. that you don't seem to get now. And so, generally speaking, songs cut in a lot faster. But then structurally, you're also finding some songs now are written deliberately with the hook in the first 30 seconds, rather than waiting till a catchy chorus. Right. In order to make sure you've captured someone, grabbed them, brought them in, and basically kind of sellotape them to the chair, because you've got the hook in straight away, compared to having kind of waiting till that middle bit after a slow build, after the scene is perfectly set. It's a bit more instantaneous than that. 
um, and quite deliberately so. Um, as you say, the format kind of changes the behaviour there. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's really interesting. I never knew that. One thing that I, well, from my own observation, is that you see a lot of bands like U2, for example, a big live band, and they tend to go for the sort of, you know, stadium-filling hit. Do you see the sort of maybe different musicians going for different targets like that, or is that something that's driven by, by, by some of these uh, patterns of consumption, I wonder? Um, yeah, I mean, U2 is an interesting example, because you're right, they have the stadium in mind, and they have it two years out, they have a plan of how to get there, how to fill that stadium again, and they are a superb stadium band. The record then falls in line with that, the release schedule is based around that live experience and the record is world class as well but it's with a destination in mind and a physical space in mind that they develop it compared to some other artists who will just have the next song and not necessarily be planning that much further ahead and i think obviously genres of music styles of music change um, and what's popular changes but certainly that model of if i play the extremes giant big bands how many meters of video tech provided behind it that creative starts from the album moment but with that stadium in mind compared to to borrow a cliche ed sheeran's first album which is kind of him and a guitar just wandering through and seeing what happens next he now plays stadiums but it's just him and a guitar and two very different paths to many sold out shows okay so one thing i have to think about and uh, correct me if i'm wrong is that we have fewer larger record labels. Um, a lot of indie labels, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, have been consolidated into larger labels. And I wonder how this affects the type of artists that are backed. Like the way I see the market was you have smaller indie labels and they would have been fringe. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Players, perhaps... And these labels would have perhaps taken a punt on a low probability but high impact band if they were successful, someone like the Smiths. And the larger labels then are taking the safe bet, you know, the more certain return that is perhaps so so less likely to be to blow your mind away, but uh, also less likely to be a failure. And with sort of consolidation in the market, I feel like this sort of less competition means there's fewer fringe players that rely on the risky punt to get anywhere. So we're left with the larger labels taking safe bets. Now, that could be a complete misreading of the situation. Another thing then maybe that I think about is it could also be the case, of course, that we have, you know, the, the, the model has changed, the financial return has changed, and rec record labels then need to adjust their portfolio to account for that. So I wonder, does any of that make any sense? So I, I, so I agree with chunks of it. So let me try and run through how I see the world and we'll see where we disagree. For me, the consolidation amongst the major players probably doesn't diminish risk appetite. If you were risk averse, you wouldn't be a record label. You'd be a bank, you'd be something different. The, the appetite for creating something interesting, innovative, new, exists across the spectrum, major and indie. So the consolidation does an interesting thing 
in that it logically reduces competition because there are fewer players who play at that very expensive level. Um, but actually, if you look at how Universal is structured, the internal labels compete with each other. And so you haven't necessarily lost competition from the marketplace. There's still a hunger for snapping up the next thing. Um, and Universal's labels compete with themselves as fiercely as they compete with Sony and with Warner, um, who, of course, compete with each other as well. There's a huge appetite for taking a risk on the next big thing. Now let's talk about established acts. And we'll come back to cutting edge talent in a second. For someone like Robbie Williams, who is a very predictable entity, not personally, but of course um, on a commercial level, you can have a very good idea of what Robbie's financial situation should look like if we play our cards right based on his existing audience. And so there's a lot more to feel safe about in that situation. You've got much greater clarity of the artist, their creative direction, and you've got a very clear view on how you can market that effectively because it's been proven before. And so there has definitely been a preference for doing the right deals with artists with large existing audiences because you know so much more, your risk is reduced. The reason the risk is reduced becomes important. Sorry, the reason lower risk is important is because the returns have fallen. So it's not the risk appetite that's changed. It's that the return for being successful when taking risk has dropped significantly. And so the industry has obviously shrunk um, since it's, what, peak in 2000-ish with CDs. It fell significantly till about, what, 2011, 2012, and started coming back around again, probably even more recently than that, growing now meaningfully through streaming, but not yet at its peak from those days. So you've seen less money around, which means taking risk becomes more expensive in economic terms. The risk is higher, proportionate to the reward. And that, for me, has been one of the big driving forces in lower risk. So that consolidation towards proven audiences, proven fan bases, is one way to reduce risk. The other side of it, is to do different deals with emerging talent and to do those deals later in the artist's life cycle. So once an artist has proved themselves rather than once an artist shows promise. And this, the logic is the same, prove an audience, we know a bit more, we've reduced our risk that way. And that changes the dynamic a lot for, well, for the whole industry. Um, especially for the artist managers who often now carry artists for a lot longer in order to get them to a major label deal or an indie deal, any record deal. That deal then is not what it used to be. So it seems that, okay, the returns have fallen and therefore the, the portfolio has shifted more towards maybe something that's more predictable. And then when it comes to bringing in new talent, you want a bit more predictability there. And would 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 a lot of the data and analytics come into play then when it comes to determining how safe a bet a new, new artist may be. And does that data maybe make it easier for the artist to prove themselves and to, to get to that higher standard than maybe back in the day when nowadays there's so much information available to everybody and you, you can record at home in your bedroom and you can do all, you know, promote yourself online at a relatively low, low cost. So I imagine there is a, it is a bit easier for the artist, but at the same time, you know, you have to put food on the table, I suppose. Uh, completely. And I'm glad you mentioned the kind of bedroom DJ 
artists recording from home situation because there is definitely a reality where people can do so much more for themselves now than they could ever do that the question of whether you need a record deal is completely legitimate you can have a global hit so tones and i in australia has a song doing well dance monkey great that song travels the world and she becomes a global success on the back of the global platforms that now exist spotify apple music and so on the good news is that because you can do things yourself you can prove to a record label you are worth signing or you can decide i don't need you guys I appreciate the offer you've just made me. I think I'm better off staying outside of this structure and I will do it myself. I will build a team. I will get some external marketing help. There are agencies that do that. I will get my music distributed through a platform. number of players do that for you. And there's huge opportunity to do a lot more for yourself um, than was ever the case 15 years ago even. So the balance is shifting a little there. Uh, uh, sorry, you, you also you asked about the data side of things. Um, whether people can prove themselves that way. And so I think there is a lot more information available to artists. I think they can be much more empowered much earlier on to kind of get the same insights that would have been exclusively for big record labels years ago. And um, so that's powerful. It also equips the indie community uh, to compete with the, the majors, which is great. In terms of how that information is used, there's certainly an extent to which it can measure success. Um, and can yeah can quickly tell you whether or not something did not work i don't think it quickly tells you whether something will forever work but i think it can tell you if something is just not connecting um, and that you need to change tact okay no, that, that that is uh, very interesting all right you see a lot of um discussions about how you know you, you said that the peak was around cd sales now we're moving into streaming if you're if you're an artist particularly a young artist starting out now if, and you want to make your living, is there the same is the same emphasis on the recorded the returns of the recorded material, or does it is it more towards maybe live performances, or and does that maybe influence how what they prioritize when it comes to um, their career? Uh, yeah, I think that's a great question. For me, if I look at the big picture, rec- live music in the UK overtook recorded music in the UK in about two thousand nine. And live has kept growing. So on a macro level, there's more money in live music than there is in records just now um, in the UK. Hard to say globally because global live data is hard to get hold of. But you would imagine the picture is the same. That certainly live is on the up. Recorded music now growing, but live is growing fast. And um, if we absent the current um, hiccup, let's say, with Corona. Sure. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to watch, but we'll come back to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Um, If I was an artist starting out now, I think being good at live has to be a very high priority. I think once you have a song that works, making sure it also works live and making sure that you as an artist can function in a live environment, I think that's pretty crucial, um, both for your development and your artist fan base development, but also then for making money. Um, If you look at the value of 100 people streaming your music tonight or 100 people paying to be at your show tonight and um, the economics are pretty clear that live is good for having a a moment with a higher price point what, what i find it really interesting is then when you think about what sort of music return comes comes out of that because you look at band, like the traditional example of the beatles where 
in their early career, it was all about the live, the live pop hits. And then when they stopped playing live, it's when, you know, the really experimental stuff came out. So maybe that could be a good thing and a bad thing in the sense that maybe later in, in their career, people start to experiment. But um, I think these sort of incentives can shape the, uh, the music that's created. I, completely. And I think if you try to think of a good example, there, there are artists who sit in the studio for a year to make the perfect piece of art. And that works. And that's their audience and it works for them. But I think the return for that kind of artist who doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to perform um, and doesn't want to really invest in that live arena, I think the revenue opportunities are quite capped compared to someone who could just be really good on the road. Um, I mean, someone like Lewis Capaldi is interesting with selling out arena shows before he had an album out. And that was based on three singles at the time, smashing songs, um, but also based on being very popular on social media, very likable, very funny, and found an audience that way. And his audience wanted to see him live. And then he was selling tickets before the album was even around. That's new. That is very new, absolutely. Back and we've shifted from where the live show was, was to promote the album, whereas now definitely the album is to promote the live show in that context. I, it, I completely. It's almost your excuse to put another show on, Yeah, which is so different to where the world started. As you say, jump back to the heyday of the CD era. The purpose of playing live was not to make money on tickets. It was actually to shift as many CDs as you could and this was sufficiently true that the record label used to pay tour support. So the label would pay you to tour at a loss because it would sell them enough records to make it worth it. Right. How different we are now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so just maybe the final few minutes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people of different interests uh, listening and some, a lot of data nerds might be interested in the sort of stuff that you do when it comes to digging through all of the... Um, the um the sort of the, the music data and the streaming data and when it comes to looking at the sort of you touched on it earlier but if is there any way that maybe what sort of applications would you use the data for would you be able to predict maybe if you had data on on um performance what you, would you use that data to predict sales would you, would you use the data to predict uh, if you had if you were thinking about a new artist what, where they might be i know there's a lot of unobserved variables but what, what sort of applications would you use and what sort of modeling techniques w w would you would be used in that context yeah so if i think about some of the questions that predictive analytics could address um, from that label position i think if you've got three artists who've just done one album you're looking at which one of these three in a similar genre similar space which do you keep which one do you predict success for? I think that's a really interesting position. Similarly, predicting international success for artists who are doing well in a particular territory is vital because you can spend a lot of money trying to break Robbie Williams in America, but if they don't get him, it's never going to work. That's probably less of a marginal call than some. Um, Robbie does fine in America, but he doesn't do as well as he does in other places. If you're looking at which DJ can transition from Australia into the Netherlands, 
you've got to look at a number more variables on cultural fit, but also the music style. There's so much going on there that you could analyse who you think is going to be most successful out of your roster before you take the plunge based on that global understanding. I think that international element um, is a particular challenge and getting it right makes a lot of money. Avoiding getting it wrong saves a load of money. And then, of course, there's some stuff in between. Sure. Oh, so would you have models in place that would say, given what we know about this artist and similar artists, this is what we would predict in terms of their performance in different territories, in those sort of examples you gave? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you can look side by side at two artists based on some parameters you think are the key to success in Territory X based on the experience of other artists comparable in that territory and then see, well, okay, which do we think of these is most likely to connect with these core variables we've identified? Interesting. So, yeah, if demographic is a key part of it, okay, who's going to grow into that demographic or who's already there? And um, what are the commonalities between, yeah, where they're successful now, where they need to be successful um, going forward? There's a lot we can do there. Okay, that's really, really interesting. Um, okay, just so one final question then. I wonder um, when it comes to the the future of, of the market and if we're moving towards or we, we see songwriters building in uh, elements to the music that work well in streaming, maybe have the have the, the hook at the start, all these sort of elements. And will that drive the the type of music that we're listening to? And will it drive it maybe perhaps something that's very engaging for casual listeners and maybe for the music lover who likes to sit down and absorb something less engaging? Or is that second category something that's not really a thing anymore? Uh, good question. I like that. Um, so for me, a music lover will always exist. Right. I think they might have to fight a little harder to find music they love compared to music they like. And so if we look at the model for streaming services, dwell time, time spent in the app is a key consideration. And therefore your recommendations, coming back to safe bets like we talked about with artists, your recommendations are more likely to play safe than to take giant risk because the intent is to keep you inside the flat, inside the platform mm. to keep you engaging with adverts or with the service. So you keep paying for it. And so the recommendation I'm likely to make you is probably closer to a safe zone than a high risk zone. If what is going to thrill me is actually that risk, I think the responsibility sits with me as a music lover to go and find it. And I think now, actually, the responsibility sits in a slightly different place. But the opportunity to find it and to find all 10 albums from that one artist once you find them mm. and to explore it at length at no greater cost than your 10 euro, 10 dollar, 10 pound a month becomes an upside. For the casual listener, I would hope they're very well looked after by the existing offerings that are out there. They can discover new, new music. They can listen more often. And, and bring more value to the music industry. So I think overall, maybe the responsibility has shifted slightly, that if you want to be the person who finds the most interesting music, you have to search a bit harder yourself, but also the same tool that brought you all the music for all the hours of the day is there with the search function, mm. and you can go and explore um, as you desire. So I don't think that music lover is going away, 
but I think they have to work a little harder maybe and have to fight their own nature not to be spoon-fed. They have to actually fight themselves to go and get yeah. it. No, I can empathize with that in terms of fighting your own nature. I remember the first time I got an iPod, I just, I got so lazy. I was just listening to the same thing over and over again. I had to go back to my like portable CD player and just bring one CD with me so that I would get mm-hmm. over that hurdle. Um, so definitely I can, I can see how, how trying to emulate the, the old days of, of trying to fall in love with a CD. But I think, I think that, that gets more difficult, but no absolutely and we talk about how the format changes behavior we talked about it from the creative side from the listener perspective you might have to fight a bit harder to go and find what you love but it's totally worth it when you find it absolutely okay well that's that's a good note to end on thanks chris that was uh, really interesting and insightful insightful analysis fantastic